1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 2. Compared to the word of God, it says, uh, Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters uh, must not be disrespectful on the account on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, uh, we took a couple weeks of a detour, so to speak, from our study in First Timothy, but we're getting back into it this morning. And here in the text we just read in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, Paul addresses briefly, but addresses bond servants, or it's, it's probably better translated as slaves. Uh, New American Standard Translation puts it as slaves. You know, in our day and age, we can probably hardly comprehend such a thing, uh, such a thing to have to deal with uh, in the church, in the body of Christ. But it was so commonplace in the first century when Paul wrote this letter uh, and others that you might know if you've read, you know, if you've read the whole New Testament, all of Paul's letters a number of times, you might remember Paul addresses this subject in a handful of other places in his New Testament epistles. You know, Paul instructs Timothy here in our text at the end of verse 2. The ESV kind of puts it in the next paragraph, but it's part of verse 2. He tells him to teach and urge certain Christian duties, even upon slaves. Like, even upon uh, slaves who had become believers in Christ. And you might remember, if you remember when we studied through chapter 5, the theme of honor of honoring others kind of is woven through all of chapter 5 and into this part of chapter 6. It's the theme of the whole previous chapter. You remember back in chapter 5, verse 3, what does Paul tell Timothy to teach? He says to honor widows who are truly widows. And then he says, when he deals with elders, he tells him to show, quote, double honor, same word, double honor to elders who rule well and preach and teach the word of God. Chapter 5, verse 17. And now he uses the same word again when he tells slaves, as hard as this may have been for them to hear, that they were to regard their own masters as what? As worthy of all honor. It it goes against our, our normal thinking, I think. It's like honor widows, double honor to pastors and elders, and then all honor. It's almost like he's going up when we think he should be going down. Show all honor. And, and to count them as worthy of all honor, to make it even more difficult, even if those masters were also believers themselves. I, I dare say naturally on our own, none of us would probably think that way in our own situations. Now, needless to say, that exhortation from Paul and that, that Timothy was to echo to them uh, had to cut against the grain of their natural thoughts and inclinations. You know, they they obviously were in very difficult circumstances, to say the least, and yet they were to be careful to show honor and work hard, respecting the authority that their masters, and the word there is really, you could translate it as literally, the word despot. Like, when you think of the word despot, you don't think of a nice boss. It's, It's someone who rules over you. But they were to show respect to those despots, so to speak, who had authority over them. And and Paul doesn't just tell them to do it, he tells them why to do it. 
why they were to do such a thing. Uh, and it's not just because it was right for them to do so, given their current condition and circumstances, but also, even more importantly, is that if they failed to do that, it could bring dishonor or literally blasphemy against the name of God and God's teaching, the gospel. That's the motive that Paul gives them. In other words, they were to strive to serve and even to show honor from the heart, even under the yoke of slavery, as unto the glory of God, and so the gospel of Jesus Christ would not be brought into disrepute. That's a hard thing for him to have said. You know, do we who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, do we, in much easier circumstances, to say the least, do we strive to do all things to the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel of Christ? That's easier said than done. But nevertheless, Paul tells Timothy in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, to teach and urge or exhort these things. You know, pastors, teachers of God's word, if we would be faithful, sometimes, according to this text and others, we need to say difficult things to the flock. From the pulpit or in personal counsel and admonition. Sometimes things that are not so comfortable. Things that go against the grain of our own thinking and preferences. Things that are not easy to hear. But if we're to be faithful, we are to do these things as a matter of course. And all of this is for the good of God's people and for the glory of the name of God and his gospel. That's, that's what Paul says in this very brief part of this letter. Now, the first thing that probably jumps off the page at us is the fact that Paul addresses slaves in his letters to the churches. This, you know, First Timothy, even though it was written to Timothy as an individual, the understanding is it was to be read to the church. In Ephesus, where Timothy served, the churches, the epistles we read of, like Ephesians and Colossians and whatnot, they were, they were read out loud and taught to the church. And in those epistles as well, Paul addresses slaves and sometimes even the masters of those slaves openly in the church. You know, verse 1, he says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, the word bondservant, that's not a bad translation, uh, not, not a bad way of rendering the Greek word that Paul uses here, but I think for a lot of us, uh, it tends to soften the word that he's using. Bondservant doesn't quite sound as offensive to most of us as the word slave, but he does use the Greek word doulos here, and doulos is it's almost always rendered as slave. That is what it's referring to as a slave. A, a bondservant is a kind of slave. It's not, it's not the, the only kind of slave there was. It wasn't the only kind of slave in, in the Roman world in the first century. But doulos almost always means simply slave of some kind. So the King James puts it as servants. And I think to our modern ears, that sounds probably even softer, although it probably wasn't intended that way. But the New American Standard in this particular case renders it, I think, much better as simply putting it as slaves. Now, that Paul would take time to address slaves in the church might strike some of us in our modern context as kind of shocking. But it, it really shouldn't be if we have any historical understanding at all. Uh, the first century, some estimates have numbered uh, that slaves numbered in the millions throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, some say that as much as one-third of the population of Rome were slaves of one kind or another. A third of the population. 
Now, if you were to extrapolate that out to our country, which you, you can't really do, but if the U.S. has something around 330 million people, a third of that, 110 million, 110 million slaves in a country, a third of the population. William Hendrickson, great New Testament commentator, writes this. He says, the Roman world was full of slaves. It has been estimated that in Rome itself, at one time, about a third of the inhabitants belonged to this social class. Uh, they had become slaves, A, as prisoners of war, B, as condemned men, you know, criminals, it was part of their sentence, C, through debt, D, through kidnapping, which evil reportedly is still continuing in certain parts of the world, and that's still true today. Uh, e, or E, as those who have been sold into slavery by their parents. Besides, many were born into slavery. Often, slaves had their own slaves. This was quite the complex web going on. So when, when you read the word slave, uh, we might have a particular picture in mind. But that picture may not really be accurate in all cases. There were many ways to become a slave. Sometimes, uh, like he says, it was debt. You know, when Paul later says to, to the church in one of his letters, do not become slaves or bond servants of, of anyone, I think that's the kind he has in mind. In other words, people would basically hire themselves out. It's more strict than that. Uh, to pay off a debt. And he would say, don't do that. Don't, don't make yourself slaves of others by your own volition. Now, many of these slaves uh, had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ and believe on him for salvation. Many of them also obviously had the ability to be baptized and become members of the visible church in their area. Make no mistake, when many of the local churches that were scattered throughout the known world gathered for public worship on the Lord's Day, as we're doing right now, there were slaves among their numbers. There were slaves in the pews, and, and in some cases, masters in the same pews, worshiping along with them. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13, this is a, a verse, a passage, two verses that I've read, I don't know how many times, and it never jumped off the page. I never thought about it before, literally until preparing for this sermon. But listen to what he says. Paul's talking about the unity of the body of Christ. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, or by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and then he says, Jews or Greeks, and then he adds what? Slaves or free. All, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I think I've read that, I don't know how many times, in the back of my head, I took it as almost like a hypothetical. Even if you were a slave, no, that doesn't happen. No, he, when he wrote that, there were people in Corinth, in the pews, in the pews, but whatever they said, and like, he was, they were like, that's me. Whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're slave or free, you are all one in Christ. That, it would be hard to overstate how revolutionary or countercultural such a thing would have been to the unbelieving world in the first century. You know, slaves uh, of all those kinds, whether you sold yourself into slavery or a prisoner of war or whatever the case may have been, uh, slaves were most of the time second-class citizens. They probably weren't literally citizens at all. In most cases, they were often treated like nothing more than property until they entered the church door. Outside the church doors, somebody considered them 
basically their property to do with as they pleased. But when they walked into the church doors, that changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ changed everything. And the gospel, you might know historically, sowed the seeds for the abolition of slavery in every place it has taken hold. Slavery still occurs today. But I don't believe there's one nation where the gospel has taken hold where slavery is still being practiced. Uh, and so we should not be surprised that at all that Paul addresses them directly in many of his letters to the churches. You know, you and I, were, if we're honest, we're probably surprised more by what he doesn't say and by what he says than the fact that he actually addresses them, especially what he doesn't say. Uh, but we shouldn't be surprised that he so often addresses them in particular and even instructs them in how they should live in order to serve and glorify Christ in their lives. Now, Paul addresses slaves or bond servants also in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 to 24. It's that passage where he tells people to, wherever, whatever situation you're in when you were called, you don't have to leave that situation. And whatever, whatever, you, whatever you are when you're called, don't worry about it. And kind of shockingly to us, he even tells them if they're slaves, basically don't worry about it. He says, if you can get your freedom, I'm paraphrasing, if you can get your freedom, go ahead and do it. But don't, don't be concerned about it. You're not, you're not displeasing God because you're a slave. You are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom, basically. He also admonishes them there, saying in verse 23, he says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In other words, if you aren't one, don't become one, no matter how financially convenient or helpful it may be to them or their family. Don't, don't become a slave. It's a bad picture uh, of, of someone for, for someone who is free in Christ. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, uh, in a pretty decent-sized paragraph, Paul addresses slaves and masters and has instructions and admonitions for both of them regarding the duties they have to each other in the Lord. You know, if you're shocked that he would say, you know, slaves obey your masters in all things, uh, he also turns around and tells masters that they have a master in heaven. And they have to watch out what they do and how they treat the slaves that they have. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul addresses again both slaves and masters in the church, admonishing them as to what their duties were in the estate in which they found themselves. And besides our present passage in 1 Timothy, in the book of Titus, Paul also tells Timothy much, or tells Titus about the same thing he tells Timothy here in Titus 2, verse 9. So there's any number of places that Paul addresses this topic and addresses slaves and masters in the scriptures, and so we shouldn't be surprised about it. That means that many of them came to faith, and so many of them had to be instructed and taught. Now, you have to think that the Apostle Paul, he took special notice of the slaves who were in the church and the body of Christ, after all, if you know, if you've read through some of his epistles, or maybe all of them, you know, very often the opening greeting in the epistles, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm tempted to, I read it, but you don't engage your brain when you're reading it sometimes. It's like Paul, an apostle of Christ, to the church at Ephesus or wherever. It's, you know, it's kind of like Dear John in the letter. You know, it's just, it's just kind of the opening. It's the way you do things. It's just the, the formality. Uh, but in at least two of his epistles, Paul doesn't just identify himself as an apostle of Christ, he identifies himself literally as a slave of Christ. A slave of Christ. Romans 1, verse 1. 
Uh, many translations, it, it says a servant or a bondservant of Christ. It's the word doulos again. Paul is saying in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, in the opening verse of the letter about the gospel that was sent to Rome, where all those slaves were, remember, Hendricks said a third of the population of the city of Rome may have been slaves at one time. He opens by calling himself a slave of Christ Jesus. That's my translation, but I believe it's correct. Philippians 1.1, the same thing. He includes Timothy in it this time. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves, douloi, or it's plural of doula, slaves of Christ Jesus. It's practically the first thing the church heard when the, when the letter was read publicly to them. Imagine being a slave in those churches and, you know, suffering the things you suffered and, and, and thinking about that. And then hearing the Apostle Paul writing to you in your church, and he calls himself a slave of Christ. And really, every Christian should be able to call themselves that. None of us are slaves, thankfully. None of us have any idea what that's like, but we should all be willing to call ourselves slaves of Christ. Bought with a price. Even as a slave was bought, we have been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. But think about what those slaves must have thought, those believing slaves, hearing Paul call himself a slave of Christ. Well, uh, sad to say, I, I felt like I need to address a thousand questions with this text, but I won't, because uh, otherwise I won't actually go through the text, so I apologize in advance, but I want to look at what Paul actually commands them to do in this, in this short text. Uh, look again at verses 1 and 2. He says there to Timothy, he's kind of passing the instruction along through Timothy. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, notice that Paul mentions that they were, quote, under a yoke. If, if you weren't sure that this was a slave, that should settle the matter for you. A, a yoke, it's kind of an insulting picture. Uh, if you know what a yoke was, a yoke was something you put on a beast of burden, on an ox or a donkey, to plow. You know, when, when Paul, Paul uses that kind of a picture a lot, when he talks about a believers not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, he's picturing farm animals. And, you know, you've, you have farm animals that don't match, the yoke would be cockeyed, and your field's going to look messed up. It, it doesn't work. It's like putting a, a small tire on one side of your car and a big old, you know, knobby truck tire on the other side. It, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't match. Uh, Paul uses that same kind of thing. A yoke uh, should leave us no uh, delusions about what he's, who he's referring to when he says slaves here. Uh, it's a difficult life, to say the least, yet look at what Paul tells them to do might be the hardest thing he could tell them to do. If Paul had just said, hey, do what you got to do, do your jobs, work hard, you don't want to get you know, in trouble, um, what does he say? He says they were to regard or consider their own masters as worthy of all honor. That had to be just about the last thing they thought or certainly expected to hear from Paul. And yet Paul says the difficult truth to them. He admonishes Timothy, on top of that, to be faithful to do likewise. 
That's what he says at the end of verse 2 when he tells him, uh, it shows up as a next paragraph, part of the next paragraph in the ESV, but he says, teach and urge these things. Now, that that these things refers to everything he just said before that, not just verses 1 and 2, but it certainly includes verses 1 and 2, what Paul says to, to slaves. And the words teach and urge there, I apologize for the grammar lesson this morning, but they are present tense imperatives. And what that means is it was to be an ongoing emphasis in Timothy's teaching and preaching. This wasn't something he could kind of hit once and run away from it. You know, he couldn't, you know, he, he couldn't just say this once and rush to the next thing and then say, I did my duty. I told the slaves at least once and now I can avoid it. No, Paul says, teach and urge these things. All those things he said in the previous chapter and went before that as well, but especially and also including what he says here to the slaves. This was to be an ongoing emphasis in Timothy's preaching and teaching. And so in order for Timothy or any pastor to faithfully carry out his ministry, which had been entrusted to him, uh, he had to be willing to say hard things, to speak difficult truths, to teach and admonish believers in all kinds of walks of life or circumstances, even slaves. In other words, anybody who came to Christ for salvation, no matter what their stance, their circumstance, their station in life was, the gospel had application for them too. In any walk of life, no matter what you may be or be uh, involved in. And that includes even slaves. There was imperatives, there were commands for them in the gospel as well. Now, no doubt many slaves who came to believe in Christ for salvation may have thought that their freedom in Christ uh, somehow gave them just cause to despise or disobey their masters or maybe even worse. John Calvin writes the following. He says, it appears that in the early days of the gospel, slaves were full of expectation as if the signal for their emancipation had been given. For in many passages, Paul has to restrain that desire. And certainly slavery was such a hard condition that it's no wonder that it was exceedingly hated. You know, you think about it, you can see where the temptation would be. I'm free in Christ. I, you know, I'm, not, I'm going to be no man's slave. What, what might happen to them if they did that? They could die, and also they could bring disrepute on the gospel of Christ. And so, you know, when you, when you read certain imperatives in Scripture, uh, you've, you've heard the phrase reverse engineering. In a lot of ways, you can sort of reverse engineer, not perfectly, but the, search, the situation that was going on in the church he's writing to. So, for, in other words, for Paul to have to tell Timothy to tell the slaves in the church, consider your masters as worthy of all honor. What's flip it, you know, flip it over. What's the implication? What probably weren't they doing? They were probably saying, hey, I'm free to despise this guy. I shouldn't be, you know, put in this situation. Um, you know, and, and they were free. They felt free to despise them, to look down on them. So Paul has to tell them, no, no, no. That's not how this works uh, at the moment. You need to show them all honor and glorify Christ and how you even, you know, approach that situation. So the gospel of Christ was not a free pass for anarchy or rebellion. It wasn't an excuse for failing to show honor and respect the authorities that were placed over believers in all their various stations of life. And if you think about the early church, you might be saying to yourself, why doesn't Paul say, take up arms? You know, why doesn't Paul, you know, kind of tell them, 
you know, you shouldn't be a slave. Slavery is a sin, all this stuff. And why don't you all just take up arms and overthrow it? Um, the early church was in no position to make radical changes in the social order of their day. They did not have the numbers. They didn't have the influence morally or ethically in the culture there. And although the gospel most certainly planted the seeds that would grow into tremendous moral, social, and cultural reform and renewal, uh, that day had not yet come. The church was in no position to be making demands uh, of Rome or the whole system there, although one day they would. But in that, in this particular time, that was not something they could do. It would, it would have been unreasonable. All it would have done was got people killed, many of them Christians. And so Paul exhorts them not just to serve well, not just even to show respect outwardly. Now, we might settle for that. You know, talk about it behind their back, but when they're in front of you, yes, sir, no, sir, be respectful. Uh, he says they were to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's a hard thing. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's it's a matter of obeying the fifth commandment, which, as the shorter catechism says, requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several or various places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. In other words, the fifth commandment, which is what, kids? Honor your father and mother, right? Now, it, it's about honoring father and mother, but it's also, as most of the commandments are, I, I call it an, an umbrella category. And what's the umbrella of the fifth commandment? What's, what falls under the category of that commandment is authority and respect to authority. When you're a child, who is the first authority figure you encounter in your whole life? Your parents. Uh, it's been said, uh, Thomas Watson said something like, nothing so, nothing so sooner shortens a life than disobedience to parents. And again, he's not saying the parents are going to kill the kids. He's saying if they don't learn respect for authority in the home, chances are they're not going to learn it. And if they don't learn it, we can see in our own culture today what happens when that doesn't take place. Bad things happen and lives are very often literally cut, cut short. And so Paul is telling them to obey the fifth commandment, essentially, to honor those who have been placed, right or wrong, over them uh, for the time being. Now, if a, if a believing slave were required to do this, what excuse do any of us have for failing to do far less, really, in relation to those who are in authority over us in various ways? Now, I've met, I, I, I will not, I will, I will change the names to protect the guilty, but I have met professing believers a number of times who seemed, in my opinion, to consider everyone in authority over them as in some way at work, their employer, their boss, their supervisors, as if they were imbeciles. As if everybody that ever, you know, was, was in authority over them was a complete idiot. And it was everything, every, every job that they described to me, I worked here and this guy was an idiot. I worked here and that guy was an idiot. It's a terrible way to think, and it goes against the commandments of God. You know, Paul, Paul doesn't say, hey, slaves, if you think your masters are smarter than you or better than you or whatever, they probably didn't think any of that. He just says, consider them worthy of all honor. We should do the same thing in much easier circumstances, frankly, in our own work and other things that we may uh, all of us end up doing. Uh, to show honor to those who God, for the time being, has placed over us. You know, what would Paul say to such a person who goes around thinking everyone who, who is above them is an idiot? 
He would tell them to repent. He would tell them to show honor to them from the heart. Now think about this. You know, perhaps that boss or supervisor or employer could be won to Christ by a godlier attitude and behavior. That's the angle that Paul is pushing here. He's saying, hey, this, there's more important things than your comfort. Even to a slave, he said that, as hard as that would be to hear. And the Apostle Peter addresses a different scenario, but has similar implications in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says this, and this also can be hard to hear sometimes, but he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own, you know, it's submissions. Be subject to your own husbands, not other, not other people's husbands, your own husbands. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, tell me that's not hard to hear. You know, these, everyone here probably knows, at least knows someone who's in a marriage where one's a believer and one's not. You could probably see the logic, the kind of twisted logic, that a believing wife uh, who has an unbelieving husband might be tempted to think. She might be tempted to think, well, my husband's an unbeliever, he's ignorant of the ways and word of God, uh, he's not living the way I think he should live. So because of that, I don't have to submit to him. I don't have to submit to him as a wife does a husband. Or perhaps she should take uh, the authority, despise his authority, and kind of take the reins of things in the house. And yet, what does Peter say here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Not an easy thing to hear, but it's certainly what he says, that the believing wife should submit to her husband, her unbelieving husband, in all things except for sin, of course, and that such godly conduct might win him to the Lord. Now, certainly, on the other hand, if she were to become disrespectful, rebellious, or naggy, or whatever term you want to use, what would the result be? It probably wouldn't be the conversion of her husband, would it? He'd probably think, well, this is what Christianity is about. I'm out. You know, you, you talk about godliness, but I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing the opposite. And Paul goes on even further in our text, doesn't he, in, in 1 Timothy 6. Look again at verse 2. He says, those who have, this might be a real shocking thing to hear, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, you, you probably have to think in most of these cases, these are the kind of slaves, the situation where they sold themselves uh, due to debt or something, but in other words, but it was still part of the social contract. It was still part of the rule of the day. And there were slave owners in the church as well as slaves also. And so Paul, you know, Paul doesn't address that side of things here. What he does do is tell the believing slaves that the fact that their owner was a brother in the Lord didn't give them an excuse for being disrespectful to them on that ground. Rather, the logic of faith required that they worked even harder for them out of love for their brethren. Paul says, Hey, if they're brothers, what you should do is work harder. You know, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to compare this to being a slave because it's a silly illustration. But years ago, um, I worked uh, during my seminary days for a time uh, for my best friend. He was, he was my boss. He helped me get the job. And there were times when uh, my friend Bill, some of you have met him, great, great uh, believing man, godly man. I would ask for, you know, a vacation slot. 
you know, and, and, I, and sometimes, one time at least, I didn't get it. And the reason I didn't get it was because I was his friend. And he didn't want to make it look, and he was right, like he was showing preferential treatment. And what I did uh, at, at that job was, uh, besides joking around a lot, like I worked harder because my friend was the boss. I had another friend who did the opposite, who also got the job from Bill and worked less hard because his boss was his friend. You know, and which one of those? No, it, it's saying the same kind of logic is here. It's like, because he's your friend and your brother in this case, you should have worked harder, not less hard. You know, the, the sinful logic that we have that twists the truths of God around sometimes to our own advantage, so we think, uh, is not the way things should be done. He tells them that if they're Christians, it should give you more reason to serve better, because those who are benefiting by your service are believers and beloved. You should love this guy that you're serving. As, as unpleasant as it may be for the time being. Now, what was the motive for such counterintuitive gospel-driven living that Paul enjoins here in our text? Now, Paul teaches us here that our primary concern should be the glory of God and the gospel. In verse 1, he says that believing slaves were to what? Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching or the doctrine may not be reviled. Or the word's really blasphemy. The name of God. Do you ever consider what your behavior, words, and attitude say to others around us about God? If they know you're a Christian especially, you know, when you're baptized, what are you baptized into? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. When you're baptized as a Christian, you have the name of our triune God placed over you and upon you in your baptism. And so, I know nobody can see the baptism after you're baptized, but in a real sense, uh, what you do, what I do in this life, uh, reflects on, for good or worse, the name of God, the name of Christ. You know, back in my Navy days, a long, long time ago, uh, we who were in the military, I don't know if it's changed now, I, I think it has a little bit, uh, but during the military, we had to be very careful what we did off base. But we especially had to be careful off base if we were still in uniform. There were very strict rules. If you did something out of line, if you were arrested, if you got drunk in public, if you did something you shouldn't do, and you were wearing your uniform, the penalty was far worse. It was far worse. Now, why is that? Because whatever you did in the uniform of the military uh, reflected, in my case, for better or worse, on the world's greatest navy. What you did reflected on them, and that made it more important. So that for that reason, there used to be very strict rules about when it was and was not acceptable to even wear one's uniform off base. We didn't used to be able to wear our work uniforms off base because they were ugly, for one thing. Uh, you know, if you wore a dress uniform, fine. But there were you know certain things, certain rules that you had to... Observe, and that was why, because they didn't want you reflecting poorly on the entire branch of the service that you were in. When a greater sense, every one of us who names the name of Jesus Christ ought to be mindful of a similar thing. The honor of God's name is at stake in the way that we all live. 
You could say, in a manner of speaking, in Christ, we are always in uniform. We are never in civilian clothes, so to speak, in the Lord. The first request of the Lord's Prayer that we pray every first Sunday, you might pray at other times as well. The first request is what? That God's name, God's name matters. Hallowed be thy name, Matthew 6, 9. It's to be the chief and overarching purpose or goal of our prayers. Everything else in the Lord's Prayer after that is subservient to that one. Even your daily bread. We pray for our daily bread if it brings glory and honor to God's name. The third commandment. I won't quiz you on it, but the third commandment is not to take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God's name matters. It's emphasized in the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments both. Likewise, and not unrelated to that, we should be mindful how our lives reflect on the gospel, the teaching or doctrine of God. Does your life reflect well on the faith in Christ that you profess? Does the way that you do your work or whatever it is that you do, the way you treat the various authorities over you, reflect well on the gospel of Christ? Will the people around you at work or wherever you are look at how you're living, your attitude, whatnot, and say, hey, look what Christianity results in? Or will they say, hey, look what Christianity results in? If this is what, if this, is what this Jesus thing is about, I want no part of it. That is sometimes the result. And, and the word reviled there in verse 1 is literal. You could transliterate it, blasphemed, as the King James Version puts it well. To, we want the name and the doctrine or gospel of God to be blasphemed among unbelievers. Then we must look carefully, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk or how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time or redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. You know, um, there's a saying, I think it's falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi. You've probably all heard it. Maybe you've said it or seen it on a bumper sticker. You know, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, do what? Use words. Well, he used words all the time. He was not in mind. He was not a gospel pantomimer. Um, he didn't teach anything like that. But um, there's another, there's a, a kernel of truth to it, though, isn't there? The truth isn't that you don't ever have to say anything. Very often, if you're around somebody for a long time, they know you end up telling them you're a believer in Christ, you're a Christian, if you've shared the gospel with them. Uh, but, but how we live around them will either undo that or back it up in many ways. And God uses both. He uses our, not just our literal conversations, but you know, the old, uh, old Christian writers used the word conversation to mean your way of life. So it's not just our talk, but our conversation as far as the way we live uh, can glorify God or can cause it to be his name be blasphemed. So may the Lord Jesus work in us by his Holy Spirit, that we who profess the name of Christ might be mindful of how we live in all circumstances, that, and that the way that, that we live, uh, the way it reflects on the name of God and the gospel of Christ. May outsiders, those we are around who don't know the Lord, may they see uh, how you live, how we all live, and see the truth of the gospel and the glory of God in it, so that some of those might even be one to Christ. Let's pray.